0: Each man then took his post at their retire. So then these numerous hosts began to fire. The cannon on each side did roar like All their pride. Hello and welcome to, to the American somewhere. Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at chapters 20 to 25 of Mon and Wolf by Francis Parkman. This is the second to last section, last second to last episode in this entire series on Francis Parkman Jr.'s uh, historical writings, and this episode and the next one, uh, taken together, really tell the story of the final campaigns of the French and Indian War, culminating in the, the Battle of the Fields of Abraham and and the fall of Quebec uh, of of 1760. So um, yeah, they kind of fit together. These are really the the sections in which uh, um, the Prime Minister Pitt and General Wolfe really uh, play the m- most dominant role in in decisively ending this this conflict uh, that had been raging for more than a century this conflict uh, about who which empire the French or the English would dominate the Americas so um, you know Parkman actually gets considering how patient he's been in telling the story of this this conflict he actually goes pretty rapidly to get to the invasion of, of Canada in, in 1759 and 1760. But I think that's also the feeling, the argument he wants to make is that it really was this shift of leadership um, in the final years of the French and Indian War that allowed for this um, decisive turn. It was really a, a decision from the top to commit fully the resources, the manpower, and um, just the political will into a a final invasion of quebec Um, but that said a lot was set up uh prior to this Um, we for instance saw the siege of louisbourg which you know took out the the main port that was projecting french power in the northern atlantic the the port of louisbourg which kind of ends the the ongoing and back and forth conflict over acadia and we've also seen the conflicts in the, in the Hudson Valley, which had been going back and forth between France and, and England, but largely dominated by, by France, starting to turn as well. Um, so, I mean, even this chapter, though, begins with a French victory. This section of the book begins with a French, French victory in uh, the Battle of Ticonderoga, Chapter 20. The French called it something different. The French called it um, Fort Carrion, um, it's in the upper Hudson um, but this was an important fort that had to be taken to open up the way for a invasion of, of New France proper. Other forts like Fort Frontenac and uh, Fort Dunskay, would be taken by the, by the British uh, which would secure the frontier but really the, the the seizure of the Hudson Valley would be very very important for the open up the door to to um, to uh New New France, but uh the path of the Hudson River would uh be closed off because of the their defeat at, at Fort Ticonderoga. But overall, the seizure of three of these four forts uh, basically set up the 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 1759 campaign into Quebec itself. As this chapter opens, we're reminded of of this commitment of of the king and parliament to this war. Uh, Quote In the last in the last year Loden called on the colonists for four thousand men. This year Pitt asked them for twenty thousand and promised that the king would supply arms, ammunition, tents, provisions, leaving only the the provinces only the raising, clothing, and pay of the soldiers. And he added the assurance that Parliament would be asked to make some compensation even for that. Thus encouraged, cheered by the removal of Loudoun and animated by the unwanted vigor of British preparation, the several provincial assemblies voted in abundance through the unusual vexation delays took place in raising equipping and sending them to the field. So even here we get a, a brief little moment of, of colonial u- unity uh, because of the leadership of, of Pitt, even though of course uh, the actual practice of raising funds in the colonies would remain prone to, to conflict. That would remain true even in the American Revolution when different states funded the war very differently, and some did use debt. And that, that became an issue, of course, in the early Republican period when there was debates over things like the national debt. I mean, there's other change of leadership, too, like uh, Loden, who was uh, um, leading, leading colonial troops was replaced by James um, Abercrombie, a more effective general. Later, we get Wolf, The Rise of Wolf, um, Paul, Paul Noll becomes the new governor of Massachusetts. So kind of across the board we see a new wave of leadership, all committed to, to, uh, to uh, a rapid victory uh, in this war and an invasion of Quebec. Now, all that said, this, this campaign in the Hudson Valley, back and forth, a lot of bloody sieges, a lot of, of troops lost on both sides. You know, this, sea, this attack on Fort Ticonderoga seemed to have been a, a pretty horrible disaster for, for the British. Montcalm himself had some 6,000 troops in that, in that fort. And the siege itself uh, culminated in a pretty brutal melee. Um, quote, The scene was frightful. Masses of infuriated men who could not go forward and would not go back, straining for an enemy they could not reach and firing on an enemy they could not see, caught in the entanglements of fallen trees, tripped by briars, stumbling over logs, tearing through bows, shouting, yelling, cursing, and pelted all the while with bullets that killed them by scores, stretched them on the ground, or hung them on jagged branches in strange attitudes of death. The provincials supported the regulars of spirit, and some of them forced their way to the foot of the wooden wall. The French fought on with the intrepid gaiety of their nation, which also viva le Roy and uh, viva notre general, mingled with the din of musketry. Montcalm, with his coat off for the day was hot, directed, the defense of the center and repaired to any part of the line where danger seemed greatest. He is warm in praise of his enemies and declares that between 1 and 7 o'clock, they attacked him six successive times. Early in the action, Abercrombie tried to turn the French left by turning 20 bateaux uh, filled with troops down the outlet of Lake George. They were met by the fire of the volunteers stationed to defend the low ground on the side and still advancing, they came within range of the cannon of the fort which sank two of them and drove back the rest. So this meant a, a direct assault uh, up the Hudson to, to Quebec would not be possible. Eventually Wolfe would, they would land troops in, in Quebec um, to, to lay siege to, to the city. Uh, but there's some other important victories here in chapter, described in chapters 21 and 22, specifically uh, Fort Frontenac and, and Fort Dunske. Well, this chapter on Fort Frontenac, I don't don't want to say too much about the battle itself, but this chapter of Fort Frontenac says some interesting things about growing tension between the provincials and and the British troops that were sent there. Um, this of course has often been said when looking at like, the cultural background of the American Revolution that this war because so many colonists fought in the war fought side by side with British troops that they started to notice cultural political institutional differences you know like the difference between electing leaders among the provincial troops and and then the militias versus the more hierarchical aristocratic um, British army uh, but This is interesting. Uh, He writes, of the British officers, the greater part had seen but little active service. Most of them were men of family, exceedingly prejudiced and insular, whose knowledge of the world was limited to certain classes of their own countrymen and who looked down on all others, whether domestic or foreign. Towards the provincials, their attitude was one of tranquil superiority, though its tranquility was occasionally disturbed by what they regarded as absurd pretension on the part of colony officers. One of them gave vent to the feeling in an article in the London Chronicle in which he advanced the very reasonable proposition that a farmer is not to be taken from the plow and made an officer in a day. And he was answered wrathfully at great length in the Boston Evening Post by writers writer signing himself a New England man. The provincial officers, on the other hand, and especially those in New England, being no less narrow and prejudiced, filled with a sensitive pride in a jealous local patriotism, and bred up a local apprehension of the merits and importance of their country, regarded British superciliousness with a resentment which their strong love for England could not overcome. This feeling was far from being confined to the officers. A provincial regiment stationed at Half Moon on the Hudson threw itself affronted by Captain Krushank, a regular officer, and the men were so incensed that nearly half of them went off in a body. The deportment of British officers in the Seven Years' of War no doubt had some part in hastening on the revolution. But in any case, the seizing of Fort Frontenac split New France into two and started in did a lot to break up that chain of forts. That was so key to the French holding of its frontier. Uh, it's much the same story with the siege of Fort Dunskay in 1758. Um, another frontier battle. Um, now this, this was initially a French uh, battle. Washington apparently was, was in this fight as well. He's a witness to it. Um, this was initially a French uh, victory. They repulsed the initial assault on the fort, but the British troops were so overwhelmed, over, overwhelming that the, the French withdrew. Um, and after that withdrawal, uh, the fort was renamed Fort Pitt and it, it became a, a British fort. And that kind of changes the situation, according to Parkman. Um, the ending of 1758 really broke the center of the French positions. Well, the center holds maybe with Fort Ticonderoga, but their, their left wing breaks up with the capture of these important forts um and we even start to see some indians begin to lose faith in the in the french and i think that's that's a theme parkman comes to a lot is is how the indians respected victory and how when victory didn't come it was hard to really hold these alliances together even pontiac had this trouble right he was able to get the uh various algonquins on his side for the 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 war but when the siege of detroit started to peter off then you know the, the various troops started to sign their own peace treaties with the very with, with the British, um, piecemeal, and it was just a lot of effort, a lot of focus on, on image, on victory, as as key to maintaining these alliances with, with the Indians. Perhaps seems fickle from a a, a modern standpoint, you know, a modern European standpoint, in which you know like alliances are drawn in, on, on are almost contractual. But nevertheless, it is a, it's a different war culture. It's a different diplomatic culture, obviously. So all, that sets up uh, the invasion of Quebec. And we get a nice little chapter here, chapter 23, called The Brink of Ruin, which uh, flips back to the situation back on the home front. Um, not so much about the politics of Canada. I think Parkman more or less exhausted what he had to say about that in, the, in some earlier chapters. But he does talk about the overall mood of Montcalm, the mood of other leaders the overall decline of just even social life in, in Quebec, the feeling of dread, and the failures of the leaders in in New France to get any help from, from Paris, and how Paris just wasn't willing to commit my, many resources to defend defend Quebec. And a lot of the effort of the, the leaders here is just to maintain basic morale and keep things from completely falling apart. Uh, he writes, the condition in Canada was indeed deplorable. The St. Lawrence was watched by British ships. The harvest was meager. A barrel of flour cost 200 francs. Most of the cattle and many of the horses had been killed for food. The people lived chiefly on the pittance of salt cod or on rations furnished by the king. All prices were inordinate. The officers from France were starving in their pay while a legion of indignant and imported scoundrels fattened on the general distress. What a country, exclaims Montcalm. Here are all the knaves grow rich and the honest men are ruined. He was resolved to stand by it to the last, and wrote to the minister of war that he would bury himself under its ruins—some kind of apocalyptic moment. But uh, the effort to get help from France is is kind of futile here. Um, Bougainville—he was a another general uh, in the war, but he he actually he petitioned. He sent four memorials to the court uh, describing the. Situation in Canada, asking for additional recruits and additional funding, but uh, it all fell on deaf deaf ears. And the numerical advantage here was believed to be overwhelming. It was in, in practice, it seemed to be much less than that. But uh, the French believed they were 13,000 effective men against um, up to 50,000 um, men. Uh, that the English were able to put together for this this final campaign, so a massive material, ch- numerical challenge, a massive difference in political will, a massive difference in in, in leadership as well. Uh, I think Parkman would would agree. So I really like this chapter, which really summed up kind of the apocalyptic moment uh, in the final in the final days. Um, chapter four is uh, is called Wolf, and it's actually our first. We're right towards the end of the book here, and we're finally getting our introduction to one of the titular characters, General Wolfe. We, we met him before in the Siege of, of, of Louisbourg, and, and Parkman talked about him from time to time, but it's only at this point that Wolfe becomes the overall commander and we get a, a systematic description of him, his background, his, his, his history. And of course, he's most famous for, of course, dying during the Siege of Quebec and being a, a relatively young, uh, dynamic, headstrong, leader. So the the 59 campaign which of course is going to basically end the war uh, was was three pronged. Uh, There would be um, an additional attempt at Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point which would then hopefully lead to uh, Montreal. The amphibious force under General Wolfe would go right to Quebec and engage in siege to the city immediately and then there'd be an advance on on Niagara. Um, that would be largely a colonial effort. Now thinking about Wolf, I, I find the, the kind of the the love of General Wolf among Americans rather interesting, um, given that this was a war for British Empire and it was a war that, that led to the conquest of, of Quebec, um, which of course did not become part of the United States. Um, and when you think about the American Revolution coming later, I don't know, I guess it's just, it's, I think maybe it comes out of the fact that this is the epic history of colonial America, this, this struggle with France. And it becomes kind of part of the American story, even if the United States and Great Britain broke away. Um, if we think of course, one of the most famous paintings by an American of the early um, post-revolution period was Benjamin West's uh, The Death of General Wolfe, painted in 1776 of all times so um, yeah so this chapter kind of sets up a little mostly about Wolfe a little bit about the campaign how the Battle of Lewisburg this taking of Lewisburg uplifted Wolfe's reputation um, so the first story we get and basically most of the rest of the book is going to involve uh, this these three efforts um, these three prongs of the 1759 campaign But we start with, and the last chapter I'll look at today is called Wolf at Quebec, 1759. And it starts out discussing the plan to defend Quebec. Um, Parkman's of the view that the numerical advantage that the British had was not insurmountable; That, of course, Quebec was a defensible position to a degree. Um, I I think he, he has a really interesting conversation, I think a little bit later in the book, about geography and how so much of military... Tactics and military strategy is a question purely of geography and the the general, the commander who's able to make best use of geography will be the most likely to be victorious. Um, But he does go into some detail about the different preparations for the defense of of Quebec, including essentially the mass mobilization of the population, kind of uh, a little bit of total war being embraced by the leaders in Quebec. Every able-bodied man, Parkman writes, in the colony and every boy who could fire a gun was to be called to the field. Vaudreuil sent a circular letter to the militia captains of all the parishes with orders to read it to the parishioners. They exhorted them to defend their religion, their wives, their children, and their goods from the fury of the heretics. They declared that he, the governor, would never yield up Canada on any terms whatsoever and ordered them to join the army at once, leaving none behind but the old, the sick, the women, and the children. Uh, and the bishop issued a pastoral mandate to defend Quebec. So it became kind of religious, uh, almost uh an attempt here at the end to make frame this even in a religious war. Now, what's what's uh, Wolf's plan? Well, Wolf's plan seems to have been to to basically avoid a general battle, to lay siege, to go back to exhaust the enemy troops until winter would force them to to withdraw. That was the, the plan he had. Uh, and then he hoped at some point later to be joined by troops moving against Ticonderoga. Despite that being the plan, though, Parkman writes that Wolf was kind of itching for for a fight. And he would get that fight, and that fight would, would uh, be his his death. So um, that will be um, the last episode. So this one's going to be quick. This is just sort of setting up the military history leading up to the, the seizure of Quebec. And we'll talk about the final campaigns of the French-Indian War. We'll talk about the... Piece of Paris, and we'll talk about Parkman's overall conclusion to this book, which kind of serves as the overall conclusion to this entire series. So that will hopefully be a little bit of a longer episode where I'll kind of wrap up everything I have to say about Parkman. Of course, I think I've said quite enough already, but um, we'll we'll see how this uh, this uh, project of reading through Parkman's works um, ends up in the next episode. So um, sorry for the short. Um, update, but I think that's all this section really deserves. But there is some good stuff here about the conflict between British troops and colonial troops, about uh, the desperation in Quebec, the kind of ap- apocalyptic moment, and some great uh, gushing over, over General Wolfe by our author. Um, so yeah, that's going to be it for now. Uh, leave your own thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescasts at gmail.com. And I will see you next time with the conclusion. To the to my French review began of began to writing their ranks were flying Brave Wolf then seemed to wake as he lay dying. He lifted up his head while the guns did rattle, and to his army said. How goes the battle is a decamp?